everyone. Welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. I'm so excited for this conversation that I'm having today with with someone who's had a very profound influence on my life and him and his co-host of the podcast he hosts, The Bible for Normal People, have influenced me and, and given me so much healing and stuff to work through, I guess, as as my deconstruction has gone on, but in a in a very positive and, and lighthearted way. So I'd like to introduce today one of the hosts of the Only God Ordained podcast, Jared Bias. Jared, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for the kind words, Chris. You know, we we do want to be um, hopeful and and a positive influence on the future of the Christian faith. And there's a lot of people going through a lot of deconstruction and undoing a lot of things. And and that's always necessary and important. We also want to look at the, the light at the end of the tunnel in some ways and, and start reconstructing what faith is about. Yeah. And that's what's been so impressive to me about you guys is, is especially with the amount of flack you guys have gotten in your own personal lives, um, just how hopeful that you've maintained yourselves to be. And even you guys tackle some very serious topics on the podcast. I mean, even a few weeks ago when you guys were talking about hell, it was a very heavy topic. But even in that, you guys managed to be lighthearted, not in the not taking it seriously, but in the sense that like, oh, this is okay. Like we can talk about this. This isn't something that you need to be afraid of talking about. Yeah, it's interesting. The longer you're in systems that aren't so controlling, maybe I can put it that way, you you start to free yourself to realize that that God is probably okay with the questions. It really wasn't mm-hmm. God that had the problem. It was the leaders and authority figures in your life that probably tended to have those problems. And once we can open up to that, uh, that God is expansive and, and full of wonder and and it, and in the history of faith, it's been a lot about asking questions and not just having the right answers. I think it can be a, a very freeing experience for sure. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. So I guess to start it out, then what would, what did the journey of asking questions start like for you? Well, it's interesting because for me at least, asking questions led to a lot of learning early on. So curiosity hmm. has led my life in a lot of ways. I'm always very curious ever since I was really little. And there comes a point where you, where I guess that's baptized and that's affirmed in within Christian faith, because what it means is you're learning all of these things, but you tend to do, for me at least early on, stay within the tribe. So I was learning, but I was learning the basics. I was learning about theology and growing in my understanding of all these different facets of theology, but it was all within my within my tribe. And so I got really good at, at having the answers within that particular community and within a few communities, but it was all within a conservative evangelical framework. So I got really good at, at getting having the answers. And then there came a point where my curiosity led me out of those answers and led me into a whole different set of questions. So I was, I like to think of it like I visualize it as we're climbing up this mountain as we grow in our understanding. And if we continue to grow long enough, we realize we hit a point where we, we come over the, the, the top and we realize there's this great plane in front of us. And then behind that's a whole nother mountain to climb. And mm. for anyone who's gone to college, you probably have this experience where I learned, you know, you get your bachelor's degree and that's just enough to know you really don't know anything about the field. <laughs> and then, you know, you do your master's and then you feel like you actually have a grasp on the field. And then you look at the mountain behind you and realize there's still so much to learn. Um, so yeah. that's kind of been my experiences. Every every vista, every kind of time I, I think I'm coming to a conclusion, I realize there's this whole world behind it. Yeah, no, I, I I totally understand that. And I just switched majors. So sometimes you'll get to the top of the mountain and you'll be like, what am I doing here? Why, like, how did <laughs> yeah. I, how did I, why get did here? I even climb this mountain? Yeah. <laughs> why did I start this journey? Um, but yeah, so, so you were in a conservative evangelical church and, and I, I really resonate with that story of, of becoming very good at, at giving the right answers. So what was the response when, and I, I definitely resonate with the idea that eventually the questions start changing and and they become questions that some people aren't necessarily comfortable with. But what was the response for you within church, within uh, your work, within your family? Uh, What what was, what was the response to the questions that you started asking once you kind of, I don't want to say broke that mold, 
but once you kind of started realizing there were more questions to ask. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's it's personality-based, too. I've always been one to have one foot in a tribe and one foot out. So even, you know, when I was really young, I grew up more as a, a charismatic, and I was always asking questions around some of that that led me into being more Presbyterian. And mm-hmm. so within my charismatic community, I was always asking kind of head-scratching questions that for me were very genuine and out of a, a almost a naive sense of uh, not knowing that I wasn't supposed to be asking those kinds of questions that were putting me at odds. And then mm. um, within the Presbyterian context, that was, and then I went to Liberty. So being a Presbyterian at Liberty put me a little bit on the outside. And then I was a philosophy major. So that kind of put me on the outside too. <laughs> and uh, then going to a Presbyterian based seminary, but having all these other backgrounds and being more philosophy based kind of put me on the outside a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and kind of, that's just been my, that's been my journey. So it wasn't ever, it wasn't ever a, Hey, I'm in, I'm in, I fully bought into this one particular tribe and now they're rejecting me. I kind of always had one foot in one foot out was always uh, looking mm-hmm. inward and always kind of looking out and saying what else is out there though um so it just happened to all be within a certain umbrella but at the time it did feel like you know going in and out of these different tribes so in some ways i feel like i got some practice throughout um and then what it, i mean very frankly and, and practically what it led to was me no longer being a pastor so that was kind of the more of the breaking point uh, mm-hmm. Once you step outside of a particular umbrella of evangelicalism, then there that cuts you off from a whole lot of uh, communities. So um, that's that's kind of what it is. Questions led to um, responses and certain behaviors and ways of being in the world that weren't compatible anymore. Um, and so mm-hmm. that led to you know a whole different whole different journey, career change, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And out of curiosity, and, and you don't have to answer this, but what were some of the questions in in particular that, that led to that point where, okay, I'm in ministry, I went to seminary, and now I'm not a pastor anymore? Well, you know, not surprisingly, it was somewhat ethically based. So for me, gay marriage was a big part of that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, I was saying gay marriage and also the Bible wasn't living up to the expectations that I had for it. So those would definitely mm. be the two things that were a challenge for me. Not, not big ones at all. In the, yeah, in no, the I mean, they're pretty, community. pretty small. Yeah. No, that's, that, that's amazing. So how did you get to where you are now then? So you, you're hosting the podcast, you're, you're equipping people to read their Bibles well uh, with Pete ends. So, so how did that journey take place going from uh, a pastor in an evangelical context to now um, helping untold amounts of people? Well, I think, again, for me, it was never, um, you know, you mentioned before we started, Chris, some of your story, I, I would have a similar story that I've always loved the church and, and not, of course, the bureaucracy and organization and all that, but I love people who are genuinely seeking spiritual experiences and seeking to better themselves and be more loving and gracious. And the church, for better or worse, has been the dominant setting for us to be able to do that in community over the last mm. 300 years in in this country. And so I I just I never gave up on the church in terms of the people who were spiritually seeking. And that's still a passion for me is helping people mm. take that next step, whatever that next step is for them and where they are. I want to be a, a part of that journey with people and to be as helpful as I can be. Um, and, you know, we've had we hit bumps along the way in our journey, and hopefully those can be helpful to, to other people. So for me, I, I think of it as a conduit of, of how to help. And um, yeah, and I think I still have that optimism and I still have that hope uh, that there are things that we can glean from the history of the church. There's still things we can glean from evangelicalism. There's a lot that evangelicalism did well, and there's a yeah. lot it didn't do well. And that, for me, that's just life. That's that's everything. And if yeah. we're looking for one brand of Christianity or one way of being in the world to be the be all end all, we're just setting ourselves up for failure. That's just not how the world works. And my fear is that some people will say they will disown evangelicalism and then they will just be attracted to another type of fundamentalism, whether that's a progressive yeah. fundamentalism or even an atheistic fundamentalism or some other thing that's going to try to promise this 
filling the hole in the soul instead of realizing, hey, maybe the hole in the soul is just, we have to come to peace with it, become friends with it and recognize mm. that's part of being human. Yeah. And that's what's so intriguing and fascinating to the to the time period that we're in now in this, I, I guess, deconstruction culture is that a lot of the people who have become not figureheads, not like role models and, and people that people look to for information and, and learning. It's it's interesting to watch a lot of you guys kind of turn around and because because so much of it was like, OK, there's all these people that have been hurt by the church. How can we care for them? How can we love them? How can we serve them? How can we give them new ways to look at things? And and even in myself, I mean, I'm a I'm a six on the Enneagram. So I'm either loyal to something or I'm like burn it to the ground. And so for me with evangelicalism or reformed evangelicalism, even it went from this is my everything to now most days I really do struggle with the idea that like, let's just burn it. Like, let's just get rid of it. Like, forget it all. Um, so it's been interesting to watch as, as a lot of y'all have, have kind of had to turn around and be like, wait, hang on. We're not asking you guys to be progressive fundamentalists. Like this is just the same thing we left. And it's interesting that that's just kind of the human nature as we kind of lean into whatever fundamentalism is the opposite of the fundamentalism we just left. Right. And and that really is my passion. It's how I see the world. I don't see it in terms there's kind of form and content. There's process and content. And I think a lot of people think about what we believe and the the content of the belief, but I I tend to see things in terms of structures and systems and processes. So I'm more interested in how we change structurally less so what are we putting into those containers? Because uh, those are, in some ways, the the more superficial things. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it's so it's so encouraging to hear you say that there there are good things that we can glean from evangelicalism. There's so many people, and in, in, myself included, I don't want to excuse myself from that table, who so many days are like, I hate it. Like, let's just get rid of it. Let's just topple it. Um, and I think that it's important to look back on on the things that have really shaped our culture. And like you said, for the last 300 years, the church has been the place where, where lives are changed, where people can commune, where, where, I mean, for better or worse, where politics are changed, where history is made. Um, and, and with that being said, I think one of the things that I'm interested to see how moving forward in the church in America, particularly as it becomes less entangled with American evangelicalism uh, about apologetics. So your background is, is kind of within that sphere i mean obviously philosophy but also within apologetics am i correct yeah i mean since i was it goes goes way back for me i would have been a i've been a teenager and my dream if you would have asked me when i was you know 14 or 15 years old what i want to be when i grow up i would have said uh, i want to be a professor of presuppositional apologetics hmm. dang that that's crazy how old, you said 16 yeah somewhere around there yep so so obviously the the journey has kind of taken you in a different direction, but how has apologetics kind of stayed uh, or has apologetics stayed a passion of yours? Well, I guess it depends on how, how flexible we want to be with the definition of, mm. of apologetics. And, you know, in some ways, if anything, I wonder if apologetics, which is historically defined as the defense of Christianity, in some ways, apologetics in, in some of the contexts I find myself takes the form of literal apologies, apologies mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of Christianity. And that can be uh, just as compelling as anything else. So I think we have to kind of uh, decide what we mean by apologetics. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the challenge, right? I mean, I remember when I was in high school, the, uh, the youth pastor got one of the box sets of, of this. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but the stand to reason. Um, oh yeah. Apologetics courses. And I don't know how they got it, but I took it home and listened to the whole thing. So very much like you, I loved apologetics. Like, and, and in some ways I still do, but back when I was in the evangelical church, hardcore. I was, I, I would eat it up. I would listen to debates for fun. Like I was the type of person where I'm like, I love this stuff because it, it really sharpened my brain. And, and in recent weeks, I've actually really come back into the appreciation of, of, of that kind of back and forth. But I, I really appreciate what you're saying of how we need to hold that definition loosely. Cause I, I totally agree. I think, especially as my um, beliefs about eternity have become a little, 
not more solidified, but more loose in the sense that I don't know where we're going to go. I, I know what I hope for, but I'm not necessarily going to sit here and make a truth claim, particularly when it comes to eternal conscious torment. Um, but it, it, it allows me to love people without creating them as a project. And so apologies definitely become a lot more easy for me of sitting and sympathizing. So I, I really definitely resonate with that. Yeah, and I may also say, again, if we talk about the difference between form and content, if content is what we're talking about and how we make arguments and debating and what we actually believe, that's one thing. But one thing that my vision or my approach to apologetics, if we want to call it that, has changed and shifted dramatically is I have to take first stock of my own motivations and my own intentions. Mm. And I think we, we lack self-awareness sometimes, and it's very easy because that's what everyone expects us to say of why are you defending Christianity? And we, we like to think that we have all these noble reasons and all these noble causes, but we don't take the time to look at our own heart and say, what in me is compelling me to do this? Is it because I have low self-esteem and it feels good to win arguments? Is it because mm. I'm afraid of being wrong and I have a fear that uh, I have a fear deep down uh, that I'm going to be wrong and I, I and I don't know what to do with that. Or is it sense of control? Am I a controlling person in other areas of my life? And has that been seeping into how I talk about and practice my faith? I think that's a really important first step because people aren't dumb. And a lot of times when we have arguments, it's in our tone, it's our, in our emotional reactivity, it's in how we look at them, it's how we respond, how we listen, that people pick up not on what we're saying, but how we're saying it, why we're saying it the the motivation and intention behind our conversation Mm, yeah and and that make that makes perfect sense is especially in in the twitter culture facebook culture it's so easy to just and i'm i'm super guilty of it of just kind of logging into facebook and like oh what did the gospel coalition say today and then just jumping in there and just for the sake of argument picking a good fight Um, yeah picking a good fight and and sometimes i think it is necessary to jump in and i mean i even just the other day, I, I saw an article about Bart Ehrman, who he was just kind of getting dragged through the mud by this article. And I was like, what did he do to you? Like, what? Like, why are we bringing him into this? Um, but other times it's just kind of like, oh, you post about penal substitutionary atonement in a condescending way to people that don't believe in it. I'm just going to troll you and and feel better about myself in the process. Mm-hmm. And, and with that being said, what it like, what is a what is a healthy outlook for for apologetics not just christian apologetics but but for arguing uh, a a differing theology well again for me i think we have to keep the end in mind and and a lot of the conversations i have and this is where my i guess my presuppositionalism in some ways still comes out in me is i i mostly want to make sure that i and the other person i'm talking to understands what they're actually saying and the logical implications of what they're saying because hmm. if we can back down to what are those core presuppositions or wh- where where is this logic going to lead us and are other are there other logical avenues that maybe you haven't considered yet and it's for me i'm rarely arguing for my own position i hmm. generally don't find that to be super helpful and it doesn't often build relationships. It tends to tear them down. So mm-hmm. I always start with questions. I mean, questions are my, that is my primary tool for conversation around politics or religion. And don't, I think we can't underestimate the power of a well-crafted question. Mm-hmm. Because what has to happen is people aren't convinced by our great knowledge or information, especially today, because people can go Google something in 10 seconds and find something that contradicts what I just said. So it's more helping them internally understand their own internal logic and then saying, are you okay with where this logic goes and where it's come from? And if so, well, great. I mean, at least we're all on the same page. We understand. I'm not going to try to convince you otherwise, but maybe there's some questions you haven't considered or some logical understandings that if we could think of it that way, you may be open to allowing for some equifinality, that maybe there's multiple ways of coming at the same question and each have their own pros and cons. Yeah. And so much of that, I mean, I don't know about it, but it seems like a lot of that is the culture in which we live of, especially as Christians, where we we say experience doesn't really matter. 
but because of that, because of disregarding experience, experience is all that we really see. Instead of acknowledging experience, we kind of reject it. So for instance, uh, I grew up in a, in a very conservative town in Thousand Oaks, uh, California, and it's very, it's very hard to talk to people in that town about issues like racism and intersectionality and uh, new Jim Crow and, and stuff like that. And, and I used to get so frustrated and in some ways I still do, but it, a lot of it is just not necessarily a, a over uh, exaggeration of the experience, but and almost a, a kind of ignoring of the experience in the sense that you're not willing to recognize that the experience is actually what's shaping your worldview. At least to me, I could be completely wrong, but I'd love to hear your input on that. No, I think that's exactly right. I think Richard, you know, Richard Ward, both times we've had him on the podcast, that's it, what we ended up talking about is that we have to allow experience to be a part of this conversation. And if, hmm. if we, you know, uh, there's a good, um, there's a good book by a friend of mine, Myron Penner, who, who wrote a book called The End of Apologetics. Hmm. And he talks about, um, he and I both have an affinity for Soren Kierkegaard, who's a hmm. 19th century Danish philosopher. And that was, that was Kierkegaard's biggest thing about apologetics was you, if you're trying to make, and I only say this because this is my challenge with apologetics as a field is it's playing into the modernist game where objectivity is the uh, marker for success. Hmm. And that can take away in some, in some areas of our life, that's really important, like science. That's extremely important. But when, when we do that, we take away the humanness because being human is about subjectivity. It's about our own experiences of the world and not, uh, not trying to get rid of those but integrating them into this larger whole. And and so we have to be able to take experiences and let those be valid for what they are as experiences. Now, that's not to say in the public space what I feel and what you feel, they're equally valid. But when we're talking about Christianity and we're talking about um, religion, there we have to allow for experiences to be a part of the conversation. And, mm. uh, and it, the, the, the reality is what you said, Chris, is it is a part of the conversation. The danger is when we don't recognize it because when we're not mm. recognizing it, we think that we see things clearly. We think we see them objectively. And yet there's this filter in front of us called our own perspective, our own uh, worldview, our own experiences. And those are coloring how we see the world. But if we pretend we don't have that, we make our subjective experience objective and try to project that onto the world. And I think that's a, hmm. a mistake. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, here's a question just kind of off the fly. And, I, and I've been thinking about asking you this for, for a few days now. I, I, I was like, shoot, I'd love to hear what he has to say about this. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to quote anyone, but I will reference people that have kind of brought me to this point as far as apologetics go. Um, but I think Brad Jersak says it a lot of how Christianity is a faith claim. Um, and so within, within my mind, the only reason that it's a truth claim is because it's a faith claim. And so for people who aren't arguing that it's a truth claim, it is nothing but a faith claim. So it can't actually be argued. Um, and, and so within the realm of apologetics, I would be really interested to to hear you talk about like faith claim versus truth claim and, and, and what that looks like. Because obviously both you and I think that our faith claim that Jesus is Lord is true, but at the same time, it's just a faith claim. So what do we do with that? No, I think, I think that's well said. You know, um, it does remind me of, uh, <laughs> it, there's this, there's this uh, quote that Kierkegaard has in, in a book called The Sickness Unto Death, and he, he's attacking apologetics. Um, at least he's, he's writing under this, a pseudonym, anti uh Clemacus, but um, this he says this, and he, he you have to just forgive Kierkegaard for just how extreme his language can be. But that's also what makes him so fun and compelling. But he oh, says, yeah. uh, "One sees now how extraordinarily stupid it is to defend Christianity." Um, <laughs> he says, "It's certain and true that he who first invented the notion of defending Christianity is de facto Judas number two. He mm. betrays with a kiss." Only his treachery is that of stupidity. To defend is always to discredit. 
And so mm-hmm. I think that's a really important uh, thing. Yea, the person who defends Christianity has never believed it. Um, wow. And so that's kind of this, that's the idea of if we make it a truth claim, if we bring it under the microscope, we stand over it. We're there to control it. We're there to understand it. And and I always like this play on words where we say, are we here to understand Christian, Christianity or are we here to stand under it? And I like that because that's, that's an important shift. The modernist project is to make everything stand under us so that we understand it. And yet that's a power, that's a power dynamic. And so the faith claim is this, is this, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis, right? When we talks about Aslan, um, that, you know, Aslan is good, but not safe. And, and so there's a sense in which we can't tame, we can't tame this thing. And that's what I think we mean when we talk about a faith claim is it's always outside of our grasp. It's always the thing that, uh, evokes something. It's the, always the invitation, um, but not the expectation. And I think that's a really important distinction. It feels so uh, minor and it feels so abstract and hard to understand, but I think it's because we live in such a modern uh, framework. It's almost the, the, the water we swim in, we don't understand, like the fish doesn't understand that it's in water and doesn't understand the difference between water and air. I don't think we understand that we are in a cultural climate and that there's any other way of doing it. But I think that's where the Eastern, like you mentioned, Brad Jerzak, who's Eastern Orthodox, and Eastern religions, they can help us see that maybe we've adopted and put within Christianity something that's not that healthy for us, or maybe in, we've overdosed on this idea of truth claims. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's the, the book that I'm, I'm finished writing is, is coming out soon is really all about how we've made truth an idol. And how it gets in the way of belief. Yeah, and that's what's so interesting, and that's one of the reasons I, I appreciate what you guys do, and and why I'm excited about this book is is because it, it's so it, it's kind of sickly amusing to me, um, and obviously I still do it. There's still blind spots that I have where I'm completely ignorant to to where I'm still functioning out of a a modernist worldview, but to I grew up very reformed, like a, a, a John MacArthur was was like my hero, um, and and to see culture that was created in in those kinds of contexts where it was like beware of the dangers of postmodernism, but so much of the even down to the theology and the hermeneutic of that culture is driven by what came before postmodernism. So it is, a like you said, it is a cultural conversation. There is nothing, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is too bold of a statement, but at least from my perspective as a 23-year-old, it doesn't really seem like there's much operating outside of a cultural paradigm, or it's almost impossible to operate outside of one. Right. I mean, that would be to not be in the world, and we can't can't do that. so yeah, yeah. You mentioned John MacArthur. He has this uh, book out called The Truth War. I don't know when it came out. It came out quite a while ago, I would guess. I mean, that may have been out when I was a kid. But yeah, it was. Yeah. It, you know, and on the front cover, there's a snake. It's like, um, I wonder what that's going to be about. And <laughs> it's, it's just all about you know how postmodernism is attacking Christianity. And and again, it's uncritically assuming that Christianity and modernity and all the assumptions of modernity belong together as though that's, that is the truth instead of, which I think is a much more biblical and uh, faithful way of reading culture and scripture is to never make that assumption that God, God's not beholden to any cultural moment or any way of thinking. It's constantly has that prophetic witness which is how do we affirm and how, how do we discern um, what this means for us? Is this faithful to the trajectory of the gospel or is this unfaithful? And how do we respond and behave in light of that? And it also treats culture as if it's some type of bad thing in the sense that, I mean, I don't know, I could be just ripping this completely out of context. I'm a little nervous to quote the Bible around you guys because I feel like you guys handle it so well that I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to get rebuked here. Feel free. But I think with Jesus saying, like, I am with you to the very end of the age, like, I I mean, I don't know. But at least to me, it it really feels like 
okay, if Jesus is really with us to the very end of the age, perhaps the, the cultures that we interact with and engage with, they're good things. Like they're not bad things. If anything, it's, it's a, it's a new, not necessarily deeper or better, but another intimate way that we can know the Christ. And, and so it, it just kind of amazes me how derogatory, or I, I don't know if that's a word, but derogatorily, um, people within that conversation or in that context, culturally within the more conservative evangelical context can treat people outside um, especially people who have leaned more into the current philosophy of postmodernism, um, talking about, I, I don't remember who it was, but I'll, I'll never forget it. But they were talking about how doubt was basically tantamount to what the serpent came to do in Genesis three. And, um, like the, the question of, did God really say that? Well, we all know how that question ends up and those kinds of arguments of just, it's really inflammatory and, and I guess disrespectful to people who are finding themselves in a certain context. Right. And and it, it just is it betrays a certain naivete of saying, Yeah, okay, I'm I'm fine with saying that we should never question God. I, I think mm. sure that's a good principle. Now how do you know what you're thinking is from God or not? <laughs> right. That <laughs> oh, becomes boy. a harder question. So Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean I think it doesn't actually solve the problem. It just it just pushes the problem one layer deep deeper and then we have to go there and ask, okay, well now what do we do? We're basically in the same place. So um, but yeah, what you said about culture, I think is, uh, important too, because I would have grown up with this idea that culture is bad and Christianity mm. is good. And we don't realize that we actually have pretty much formulated a Christian culture by and large in this country. The majority of people are Christian. So that's, don't get me started there. We have like a persecution complex where even if we're <laughs> the majority, we always have to be the minority for some reason. But yeah. I think it also is ironic because if you look at the Bible itself, all those things where there's condemning of culture, it's condemning the religious culture of the day. It's almost mm. never condemning the outside culture because, I mean, even Paul, even in the New Testament in Corinthians, he says, listen, I'm telling you, don't don't worry about the outside culture. Don't judge that. I'm talking about in the church. And mm. in, if you think about the Hebrew Bible, the prophets, the prophets aren't condemning the, the nations. There are places where the prophets do, but by and large, the prophets are condemning the, the uh, Israelite religion and the uh, people and places and culture that are not being faithful to what God expects. So mm-hmm. to set up this, you know, God is far harsher to the insiders in our Bible than to the outsiders, far harsher. Mm-hmm. So it makes me think maybe it's not about being faithful. Maybe it's about being protectionistic and tribal is really what's led to our, our current climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what's so interesting to me of, I mean, I don't want to sit here and, and bash Masters or, or MacArthur over the head all day, but I mean, I don't, I don't know if, if you have heard about the situation going on with them of, of, um, is this sovereign grace? Uh, no, I I think it's just uh grace community, which is John MacArthur's church. Okay. No, I haven't. Mm -mm. Um, well he, so he's the pastor of grace community and then he's also the, the chair of masters college and seminary. And they've recently got their accreditation on probation. And, um, one of the things that they came out with was this is an attack from the enemy. Like this is right, um, of Satan course. trying to push back against the the kingdom of the elect. And and it's so fascinating to me. Of uh, I mean, I I I don't I would be lying to you if I said I didn't have a bone to pick with that culture. Um, that's something that I've really tried to work on, and I'm still working on. But it's uh it's interesting to me how people in that context when something good happens, it's the Lord blessing them. And then when something bad happens, it's like, man, this is just an attack from the enemy. And yet somehow in their theology, God is still sovereign over all of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, within certain, uh, certain communities, the logic is, is quite, what's the word I want to use? Uh, elastic. I mean, yeah, and I mean yeah. that sincerely, like it's very impressive. They have, uh, <laughs> they really have an answer for everything um, that yeah. allows the, the, it to be now i mean i think the challenge is of course you scratch the surface and you you take out one of those assumptions and then a lot of things start to fall apart um but the way it's been built up i mean you can tell there's you know a few hundred years of thought gone into making this uh, tower not uh it's not um it's not weak it's Hmm. it's it's strong and it's flexible and 
um, sometimes I, I still get surprised every once in a while. Someone will say a response back to me and my jaw just kind of drops like, oh, man, I never thought of that. Look at that. That's some, yeah. that's some uh, impeccable logic there. Uh, but it's all based, of course, on a few key assumptions, you know. Um, yeah. So. Well, that that's what's so interesting, and and as someone who who kind of, I don't know. I mean, I don't know you very well, but I feel like I can. Re- I feel like I can relate to the way that you observe things, and and it seems like within that culture. I mean, if if I had to guess, the one key assumption that if you pulled it out, everything would fall apart is Calvinism. Like that's the one thing in there that would just, I mean, it would topple the Jenga board. Well, what do you mean by Calvinism? Just the, I mean, I think more than anything, the, the kind of the new Calvinism, like John Piper kind of perspective where God is sovereign over everything and not necessarily, I mean, not, not to the point where God's not sovereign. I think that's something that I've really been trying to figure out how that actually works. Um, But in the sense that like you can find quotes of John Piper saying that, God directed the 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 planes of the terrorists into the World Trade Center, like that kind of sovereignty, or that kind of predestination, mm-hmm. or right. or whatever words you want to use. But particularly when it comes to issues like biblical inerrancy, it's like, well, y- you start going through textual criticism, and it 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 becomes if you're not a Calvinist, or at least if you're not a Calvinist anymore, it becomes really hard to believe in biblical inerrancy. Well, yeah, Calvinism is a great system for, I mean, they talk about impe- impeccable logic. Um, you know, in seminary, I had to read three volumes of Francis Turretin's Eclectic. I forget what the word is. I never actually figured out what that word means, theology. But it is it is like one gigantic outline that just organizes and systematizes God in this incredible mm-hmm. way. And yeah, they've done a really good job of understanding um, that you have to sort of look under every rock and make arguments for every position. And, you know, they've done a pretty good job. I mean, it's a, it's a system. It's a pretty airtight yeah. system. So the challenge with an airtight system, of course, is if, if you, if you have a few of those foundations that start to crumble, the whole thing really does fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. You're not kidding. Well, well, we're, we're running short on time and, and I, I want to be respectful of your day and, and your weekend and everything going on, but I just have a, a few more questions for you. Sure. I, I think first and foremost, I mean, I know we've kind of gone from uh, Christian apologetics to kind of interior in-house issues, um, but with both in mind, for, for those of us that like love to watch people like John Lennox debate Richard Dawkins or... Um, people who are are kind of wrestling through this within a church context of uh, I, I I'll I mean I'll just I'll just use my own personal uh, anecdotes of kind of leaving a reformed church and and realizing like no I'm actually not a Calvinist. Um, going through those dialogues with people, what is a health? What does a healthy apologetic look like? Like how does it how does it manifest itself in a healthy manner? Yeah, well, I mentioned one. I think always knowing what your motivation and intention is, and and having proper boundaries. Like, I think it's probably not wise to get into conversations when you know emotions are going to get high, and hmm. you, you know if you're if you're looking to pick a fight, then maybe find a different way. You know, go to a boxing class or something. Um, yeah. So I think that's the, that definitely the first thing is understanding what is your what is your motivation. And I would say a, a good, healthy motivation is is one that seeks to understand rather than to be understood, and certainly one that seeks to understand over one that seeks to be right and convincing. Um, so it's that's for me. It's it's built on a genuine curiosity about the other person, how they see things, why they see it that way, how is it connected to personality. Um, I think that's another thing too. Is a, a modernist mistake is to disconnect our thinking from our feeling, from our uh, environment, from our family systems, from our church communities, our social pressures. All of that plays into what we believe. We like to think mm-hmm. that we're just like you know brains in a vat or something. Um, in, in this contextless way and that none of that other stuff matters, but it definitely matters. And what we believe about the Bible and God is shaped by and has been shaped by all kinds of factors. So being curious about those things too, and making this a conversation about all of us holistic about who we are, how we see the world, what are our fears, our hopes, our concerns? Um, I Mm. think that's a much better approach than 
right now we're going to talk about this one particular topic and whether we're right yeah. or wrong about that. You know, as far as if you're, you know, and again, watching like Richard Dawkins and these guys, like in a lot of ways, it's it's more about the showmanship of the whole thing because Dawkins isn't a religion expert and usually whoever he's talking to isn't a scientist. So yeah, uh, it's like, all right, well, what are we talking about here exactly? Kind of apples and oranges and you guys are well known, so we know we're going to draw a crowd and so we're going to put you in a room and have you argue about things. But um, <laughs> so, I mean... In general, I think those are things that are important is understanding what motivates us, being holistic in our conversations with people, not feeling the need to convert, asking lots of really good questions instead of needing to interject answers. And, um, you know, what's the, it, I think the going in with the end in mind is so key. Like, what are you actually hoping mm. to get out of this? And yeah. in my experience, I can tell you hundreds and hundreds of times and hundreds and hundreds of failures you're probably not going to convince anyone of anything. So if that's your goal, you're kind of, you're kind of not in a good, you're statistically not going to get what you want. So hmm. maybe think about shifting your motivation for what it is you want out of this conversation. Um, I want to understand more where they're coming from. If I understand more where they're coming from at the end of a 30 minute conversation, this is a success. And um, I think that's a better motivation. Um, I think understanding our own biases and how we the flaws in our own arguments the flaws in our own uh, way of thinking about christianity and faith is so valuable and not being defensive right we tend to project when someone pokes at us an area where we know we're weak we tend to per, we tend to overreact and get defensive and that's where things get emotional um and so understanding what your faith really is in is it in a construct of proper uh, belief or is it in a person is it in a way of life? Like, what is it? So that when people poke, there's probably not anything someone's going to say about my faith that I'm going to have any emotional reaction to at this point, because that's not what my faith is in. My faith isn't in my thinking about my faith. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it is. Your your faith is in your ability to understand. Your faith is in your ability to articulate. Your faith is in not looking dumb in front of other people, trying to prove yourself. Instead, just be learn to be okay with where you are. And I think you'll end up with a lot less emotional reactivity and um, you won't be on edge or projecting when people poke holes. Because if you think there aren't holes in Christian faith, then you haven't been digging far enough or long enough. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of holes. So yeah. that, so I think that's where I would end. It's just also just a huge helping of humility and just say, like, it's not your responsibility to be the spokesperson for Christianity it's not your responsibility to defend God. God, if God is anything like we think God is, then I don't think God needs a lot of defending. Um, mm. And so, you know, I, I think of it more from in First John in the first chapter. The author just says, "Hey, what we what we're going to proclaim to you, what we're going to talk about here, is what we've seen and heard." And so, just to come full circle, like what you said is, I think it's much more compelling to just talk about our experiences, um, mm. which I know isn't in the realm of objective things that we can argue about and debate about but i think stories are compelling and i think people's experiences are compelling and then that's a great common ground place to start a conversation what's your experience been like well this has been mine okay well mm, how did we get yeah. there um where are we going what's the whole point of all of this um all right so i don't know rambling a little bit now but i think those are maybe some thoughts that come off uh the top of my no, head those here. Those are some great thoughts, and and it, it kind of sounds like you've 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 written a, a book about this. Are you, are you planning on releasing anything soon? Yeah, yeah, I have a book coming out in September, um, and it's called Love Matters More, and the subtitle is How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. And uh, you know, we were talking a little earlier, Chris. I think it's a very practical book. It's really about um, how we've made an idol of truth and how we really need to be upholding love. Um, and so it's really an exploration of this phrase, telling the truth in love. Like I would have been heard that a lot, and I probably would have used it a lot in some unhealthy ways growing up. Yeah. And so it's really a deconstruction of that and out of it. How do, how do we let love emerge in the midst of, of that conversation? So um, so like I said, it's a, it's a more practical book, but it really is tied to a lot of what we're talking about today and, and my background in apologetics and and uh, just all my failures, really, along the way of of needing to be right. Gosh, speaking the speaking the truth in love, I, I that's man, that's such a loaded 
um, phrase for me. And, and I'm, I'm sure it is for you. And like you said, I've definitely used it in some very um, unhealthy ways. And obviously we don't have time to, to dive into that, but maybe I'll have to have you on again to, to talk about what it actually looks like to, to speak the truth in love. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Again, the book comes out in September, so maybe around then I'd be happy to come back on and talk more about it. Oh, I'd, I'd love that. Um, last question, really. Um, and, and you can do this minute, uh, like in a minute answer, knock it out of the park, or you can take as long as you have. I know that we're coming to the end of the time here. Um, but I got to ask, since I have you on the line, what is the Bible? Like <laughs> you guys do so much good work around it, but like, what is it? The, it? I think that's something that I've really wrestled through. And I know something that my wife has wrestled through and like, what, what, are, what do we do with it? Yeah. I mean, you just, you said in a minute, in a minute, we, we literally have a podcast that we spent yeah. four <laughs> years asking yeah. those two questions to experts. So, um, yeah. so I would just say, uh, if I have one minute, I would say, we'll go to the Bible for normal front slash, yep. you know, podcast. I don't know actually how you get there, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's a, it's a really tricky question. I mean, I think for me, what it is, I would say at the very least, and I think that's an important thing at the very least, it's a collection of writing from a group of people's experiences with God. Hmm. and that's what it is for me at, at the very least. Hmm. So what do we do with that? I think there's a lot of things we can do with it, but I think it depends on our commitment to it. And so, I, you know, I've made a commitment to respect it and to try to understand it. And um, so for me, it's it's I've been kind of thinking about it in a few different ways, but I think there's a respect element um, of respecting the the tradition, um, respecting the roots, and then I think we also have a responsibility to grow out of that. And I think of uh, Brueggemann talks about the Bible as a compost pile, um, mm. a pile of compost out of which new things can grow. And I think it's disrespectful to the compost if new things don't grow out of it. If we just sit there and stare at the compost and say, "Look how wonderful this is," um, how do we root ourselves in that and grow in beautiful things? So I think I, t- I talk a lot about roots and fruits. Are we respecting the roots? Are we growing new fruit? And I think that's uh, what the Bible can can be in 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 mm. a good. Um, healthy setting, but, and this may be more controversial, I think there's other ways to do that too. I don't think the Bible is the only way that we can do that, especially as we think about what does the Bible mean for us in our modern context. I think we have to utilize things like uh, understandings in psychology and sociology and archaeology and philosophy Mm. and ethics and even Eastern religions and how are all these speaking truths that we can integrate into this great tree that's been growing for the last few thousand years called Christianity. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's beautifully said. And, and, you know, I, I always try to close out our time with, um, I, th- I think something that's really lacking in the church. And I say this every week, so probably people are going to start being like, okay, we get it. Um, but I, I really think that something lacking in the Christian climate as it is, is, is the, the discipline or the practice of encouraging one another. Um, so I just really want to encourage you right now, Jared, of just how much your work has really helped me. And, and like you said, roots and fruit of, of your, your, the work that you do with Pete and, and especially the podcast where, where you are on your own talking about whatever it is. It, it's funny because you're talking about Jonah right now on the Bible for normal people. And my first exegetical paper was on Jonah. And it, it's interesting to see how that book keeps coming into my life um, in, in different seasons and in different understandings. But just to see how y- your podcast and your work, both with Pete and, and as an individual, have brought me down deeper into my roots and, and have helped me bear much fruit. And I know from you guys sharing how many people you guys have have uh, been shared with and, and how many people have listened to your podcast I can guarantee you that that those numbers also represent people who have dug down their roots and have bear, borne fruit. So I just really want to encourage you with that of, of how helpful your ministry has been to me and also how helpful it's been to countless other people. 
Thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I, I agree. We maybe have an affirmation deficit sometimes, and it's good to hear. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So you've mentioned the book and, and, and we've mentioned the podcast, but other than that, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, on my, I have a website as well, jaredbias.com, jbias.com. Both go to the same place. I'm on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. I'm on a lot of those uh, places. And yeah, I love interacting with people, love connecting, love learning from from others. So would be happy to have uh, conversations with people there. Yeah, well, well, thank you so much, Jared, for, for being here today. And, and again, if anyone's listening, uh, go buy that book, go pre-order that book. I don't know when this is going to come out. If it's still on pre-order, go pre-order it. If it's out, buy it. Um, go to his website, listen to the podcast. Um, it's good stuff and, and it, it's helpful stuff and it's important work that they're doing. So Jared, again, one last time, thank you so much for being with me. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm very honored and humbled to have someone who has impacted my life in this kind of way, sit down and have a conversation with me. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks again for the invite. I really appreciate it. Absolutely.